0: Please be seated. Father, we do acknowledge just how great, how wonderful, what a blessing it is to come together and to sing and to praise you and to lift up our hearts in such a way, Father, as we lift up your name that we are, are blessed by the awareness of all the truths that we read in Your Word, that we sing about, Father, that all of these have come true in Christ and are real. They are part of our reality. Our, our human experience is, is, is that of, 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 of knowing that we have been created by You, and that even though our lives have, have run off track from time to time, Father, you have diligently and with compassion and mercy worked with us and guided us through the paths of love and of knowledge, Father, to know you and to return into your embrace and, and to know you, Father, in ways that we, with without Christ, without the Spirit, without your Word, we would never have been blessed with. So continue, Father, working with us, even with our, our very desire and will to, to endeavor as disciples, Father, to, to continue growing in our understanding of Your Word, to live that wise life, to be, to be guarded in our thinking, Father, against the, the wiles and the schemes of, of the evil one, and to give ourselves completely to, to Your Lordship. So as we study this final text out of 1 John, Father, what we ask for are the eyes that see and for the ears that hear. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I, I think uh, if there is one way of describing our our religious circumstances here in the United States, it's to say that... Uh, you know, we may not be saturated with the knowledge of God, but we're saturated with a, uh, a a lot of God talk, and there just there seems to be in our culture a lot of people who always seem to know what God is thinking on any subject. And quite frankly, I have always felt that humility, that fear and trembling, be the uniform of the day when it came to speaking about God's will, that as a finite being. I'm as finite as they come. The trying to speak for an infinite being on every subject is a little presumptuous. At least with, 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 uh, uh, in, these, in these areas where there is not a direct word from God. But admitting that we don't know everything is not the same thing as saying that we can't know anything about God. John uses the phrase, we know, or that we may know, over 30 times in this little letter of five chapters. And in the text that Brad just read for us, these last nine verses, we read this phrase, we know, or that we may know, six times. And when you think about it, the fact that God wrapped Himself up in flesh in the incarnation, that great mystery, that great doctrine that is revealed to us in all four of the Gospels, and the beginning of Hebrews, in the first chapter of Colossians, and throughout the entire New Testament, when you think about the Incarnation, that God has wrapped Himself up in humanity, it is a signal that there are some things that we are to know about God. Now, how diligently are we at this kind of knowing? John ends this letter from verses 13 to 21 with at least four things that we need to know to live our life centered on the Christ the first one is this we must know our salvation is certain we must know our salvation is certain if you ask me this is sort of the basis for everything else this is the basis for everything else that we know nothing else matters unless we know for certain that our relationship with God is 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 as a certain fact and that's why he writes at the very beginning of this text Verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know. So that you may know that you have eternal life. One of the reasons that John has written this entire letter, all five chapters, all of these words have been strung together. Verse 13, I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. You want to know something ironic? A lot of us grew up in churches or knew, uh, knew about churches that were certain uh, uh, about just about everything else under the sun except this. They knew all the doctrines of worship. They knew all of the doctrines about salvation and the Holy Spirit and all of these, you know, the, the questions about God, the questions about Christ. But they were not certain about this. It did not matter what the question was because the answer had already been figured out except for the one that really mattered, the really one important question, are you going to heaven? And all my life I heard people say things like, I hope so. Or I hope I've done enough. Or only God knows. You know, the irony is that after three decades of study, I see a vast, I see the vast unknown in the infiniteness of God, but at the same time, I've become more confident, more certain, more sure in the certainty of the gospel. In some respects, I, you know, I've, I, well, I have moved completely from the I hope I've done enough to my hope is in the work that Christ has accomplished for me. You know, there's a song that we sing. In Christ alone, I am more certain, as we sing in that song, that He is mine and I am His than ever before. Yeah, there was a fellow, a, a, a Swiss theologian, by the name of Karl Barth, that uh, that was a, a contemporary of, of of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and and lived during World War II. He was a very famous theologian out of out of um, Switzerland. And what he was most famous for was he he wrote a a a, a tremendous number of books called Church Dogmatics and where he sort of outlined what he believed the Bible to be saying, what God was revealing through His Word. And he covered every subject that you can imagine. And one of the things that was really important about Karl Barth is that as the, the, the Christian church overall around the world was beginning to go liberal and begin to question whether or not the Word of God was really the Word of God, whether or not the miracles had really happened, whether or not Jesus had actually come in the flesh. Karl Bart stood in the midst of all of that and said, yes, the miracles happened. This is the inspired Word of God and began to address all of that liberal theology that was rampant, especially in Western Europe. But one of the most famous stories about Karl Bart here's this guy that has written you know, thousands of pages and been published and was the known scholar of his time. He's asked at a conference here in the United States. He's visiting. He's lecturing. And somebody says, Can you sum it up in one sentence? You've you've written thousands and thousands of pages. You've written volumes and tomes on theology. Can you sum up what the Bible says? And Karl Barth got quiet. He thought for a minute and then he said, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. And that was the answer to the question. You know, for Bart, it boiled down to the certainty of the salvation. And my certainty is in the fact that I am a part of a family where there is a great inheritance. And God goes to g- such great lengths, great lengths, to make this fact known that He put His Spirit in all of us, all of us who are believers, all of us who have been baptized, all of us have had our sins forgiven and, and have, been, have been saved, to testify to this very fact that we have been saved, that our sins have been forgiven, that we have been adopted and have become His children. Paul writes in a great chapter out of Romans chapter 8, verse 16, he says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. What, what what John wants and what Paul wants and Peter and what especially the Christ wants is for this fact to be settled in our minds so that there is nothing that unsettles us in this life. To know that we are His and that He is ours. You know, the fact can be stated very simply this way. You can be born once and die twice or you can be born twice and die once. But the certainty of our salvation is one of the things... That, that John ends this letter with. The second thing is this. Not only do we know that our salvation is certain, we know that our prayers are answered. Do you know why God loves a cheerful giver? Do you know why, why, why Paul writes about God loving a cheerful giver in 2 Corinthians chapter 9? It's because God Himself is a cheerful giver. And when you hook that up with the fact that God is also a happy listener, what you have is a tremendous... An awesome, colossal motivation to pray every minute of your life. That's why Paul will say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, pray without ceasing. Why? Because God is a happy listener. And He is a cheerful giver. And John says in verse 14 of this fifth chapter, this is the what? The confidence. Circle that word. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God that if we ask anything, According to His will, He hears us. And then you drop down to verse 15, the very next verse. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of Him. I can remember... I can remember... uh, uh, Jordan, one time, my son asking me, you know, one of the ways that we taught Ellen and I taught our children to pray was to end every one of our prayers in the name of Jesus. Or at some time during that prayer, it could be even be at the beginning, to acknowledge the fact that we are praying in Jesus' name. And I remember Jordan saying one time, "Why in the world do we do that? Why do we have to do that? Why, why, why do you all? Why do I always hear you pray that way, Dad?" And I, I gave him some answers. I said, you know, well, one of the, the reasons I do it is, is to recognize the fact that, you know, there's a power other than me that I'm praying to. And, and, and the bottom line, though, is that, is that when I pray in the name of Jesus, I am aligning my will with His will, with His will being supreme, that it is in Jesus' will, in His name, that I am going to the Father in prayer. Now, John kind of steps back from the the certainty that we are heard to kind of give us this this strange little case study that I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about. It begins in verse 16. And John says, okay, we have confidence that God hears us and that He will bless us with what we have asked for that is according to His will. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Now what in the world is John talking about there? Well, there is in, in Catholic theology, there is uh, the, the moral sins versus the venial sins. The mortal I, I said moral. The mortal sins are the ones that, that are terrible and deep and dark, and they're the ones that keep you out of heaven. The venial sins are more like uh, uh, lesser sins or, or little sins The problem that we would have with that theology is that the Bible, nowhere in the Bible, is there anything as a big or a little sin. Jesus died for all of them because they're all tremendous in God's sight. And there is no example in the Bible of someone who is genuine in coming to God while there is still time being turned away from God. And even think of some of the big examples. I mean, David lusted after Bathsheba, who was the wife of one of his known mighty men, one of, his, one of his warriors, one of his best friends. And he commits adultery with that woman in the knowledge that she belongs to one of his friends and then commits, the, is com- complicit by ordering the, uh, the, the, the murder of her husband, Uriah, at the battlefront. And, and yet he finds forgiveness and, and repentance and God's acceptance In Psalm 51, you've even got Peter denying Jesus, not just once or twice, but three times, and yet he's being forgiven. Now in the context of 1 John, you have this group, this little group that's left, because there are just certain things that they no longer believe about the Christ. They no longer believe this to be true about Jesus. And John says that you are not a disciple, you are not part of the church if there are certain things that you do not believe about Jesus. The bottom line is that in some way they have rejected Christ. Now it's not a lordship issue. I mean, it's not an issue of of whether or not they've they've conquered a sin in their life or or in a couple of areas of their life. Because what John says, if you see a brother, and this is a brother that you have fellowship with, and this is a brother that you see who's accepted the lordship of Jesus, but he's struggling with something in his life. It's not a sin that's leading to death, it's just it's a sin that he's that he's struggling to overcome in his life, then verse 16, you pray for them. You don't gossip about them, but you pray for them. What John really wants, I think, or what God really wants, is summed up in chapter 3 and verse 23. He says, this is his command, to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he's commanded us. I mean, the bottom line is it's not that uh, complicated. It's about being sold out for God and it's being sold out for your brothers and sisters. So, so what is John talking about in verses 16 and 17? Well, for me, and I speak as a finite person here, but for me the bottom line is how can you pray in Jesus' name for someone who refuses to honor Jesus' name? And admitting that I'm finite, I have been so utterly surprised at times people that I, I never thought would become believers, disciples of Jesus, who would never accept forgiveness and grace and the love and the mercy and commit them their lives lock, stock, and barrel to the Christ. I have seen those kinds of people, to my, to my shame, coming to faith in Christ. And so as I understand it as a finite person, I, I continue to pray for these people until the Holy Spirit tells me not to. That this person has rejected the Christ to the point that they have been led to death. But don't get sidetracked here. We pray for brethren who are struggling. We don't gossip about them. We don't slander them. We don't isolate them in in, in ways that, uh, that, that that break fellowship with them and, d- and divide us up uh, uh, away from them. We pray for them. And we are certain that God hears our prayers when they line up according to His will. Third thing that He ends with, we must know that Satan will not prevail. Satan is real, but so are his limitations. John says in verse 18 and verse 19, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot what? Cannot what? Harm him. Let's say those words together. And the evil one... Cannot harm him. Let's say it again. The evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God. There's that we know again. We know that we are children of God. And that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. You know, quite frankly, folks, Jesus did not die on the cross to lose people. Satan will be defeated one day, but we as believers, those of us That are his children, we live in Christ's victory now. And Satan's earthly jurisdiction is not binding on us anymore. And here's one of the verses out of Romans chapter 6 that Satan does not want any of us to get acquainted with or to become intimate with. Beginning in verse 11, and talking about our baptism and, and participating in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus through that baptism, Paul says, in the same way, Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. That's a tall order. He's saying, basically, don't allow sin to be sovereign in your life. Sovereign in the sense that you feel like you have to obey every evil desire that comes down the pike. Why? Because you're dead to sin and you're alive in Christ. And then he says in verse 13, Do not offer the parts of your body to sin. Every day, because John is wanting us to know with a certain with with certainty, with assurance, with, with with confidence that Satan will not prevail, what we pray every day is not to allow our body, the instruments of our body, to be given as instruments of wickedness. But what we pray is to offer ourselves daily, he says, but rather, verse 13. Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. You know what He's telling us to pray for every day? Because Satan Satan has been defeated. And because you don't belong to Satan, you belong to Christ. You belong to that kingdom. You You don't belong to a kingdom of darkness. That what you pray for every day are these little eyes. These little eyes not to look upon evil. For these hands to not be used by Satan to perpetuate evil in the world. For this mouth, like we talked about this morning, that this mouth will not be used for unrighteous speaking and slander and cursing, but that it will be used for words of righteousness and to build other people up. That there will not be words that decay people's lives that come out of this mouth, but there will be words of of, of praise and building up people and encouragement. And, and the words of the gospel and the words of teaching and at times admonishment to come out. That's what we pray for because Romans chapter 6 and 1 John chapter 5 say this, that we no longer are under the sovereignty of Satan in this life. Now why in the world would we continue to not deal with a continuous sin in our life with this kind of truth being, being an overriding maxim of our life? You can overcome... I can, we together can be overcomers when it comes to this life of sin. And those things that we have, have become habituated in or those things that we have given up or surrendered is always going to be a part of our life. That is surrendering the power of God to the power of Satan. And what John is saying here is that you need to know this, that Satan does not prevail in your life. He does not prevail in your words. He does not have to prevail in your actions. He does not have to prevail in your thinking, lusting and coveting and, and all of these other things. He says at the, John, uh, Paul says at the end of verse 14, sin shall not be your master because you're not under law but under grace. You know, we hate change. You know, I used to be one of these guys. I kind of like change. You know, change of scenery, a change of season... The older I get, I just don't like change that much. Ford pickups to the day I die. German shepherds to the day I die. I I like red apples over green apples. Don't want to change. But change is the name of the game. It is sanctification. It's our transformed lives that are a testimony to a world that lies in the power of the evil one. Can you imagine what it must be like if, if you feel that you've just been so enslaved, that these habits are so ingrained in your life? And then somebody doesn't just hear, but they actually see with their eyes people overcoming those, those kinds of problems, those kinds of, of, of deficits in morality. The, being able to, to see new habits and new lifestyles. And new ways of thinking and new ways of speaking being, being, being birthed and blossoming out like fruit in people's lives because of their faith in the fact that God has prevailed in Christ in every inch of your life. One last thing, and we'll be done with this entire book. We know that Christ can be known. And verses 20 and 21, he says, We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. So that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. Even in His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God in eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And that's how the book ends. The letter ends. It it seems so self know so self-evident, what he's talking about, about, you know, Christ can be known. And then there, in verse 21, this little phrase, Dear children, keep yourself from idols. What is the one thing that, that in every marriage keeps you from being intimate with your spouse? It's an idol. It's, it's, it's a third party. That's why adultery is such a, a, a terrible thing. It, it is, it is it's, it's not just, it's not just, the sharing of, of of passions and emotions that should be going in one direction, all of that being diminished, all of that by being diluted because it's going off to another person. But it's also the trust being diminished and trust being shattered. And it's also the the, the energies that are given towards intimacy, the of, of being known, and, knowing and being known, of celebrating and being celebrated, of fellowshiping and being fellowshiped, of serving and being served. All all of these things. You know, uh, that 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 happened in that mutually exclusive relationship of marriage, all of that is diminished. It's diluted. It's it, it's crushed, because all of that energy has been given over to this idol, or to this third party, to this adulterous or adultery. And what John is saying right there at the very end is, you can know Christ because you're in Christ. But as is is true in every relationship, you begin to neglect. You begin to be satisfied with half knowledge or with quarter knowledge. You begin to even be satisfied with, with knowledge that you have created that may not even be real, but you have created it as such in your own mind about that person because of the greatness of the idol over here. Do you want to really know Christ? Do you really want to be intimate with Christ? Then you have to purge your heart on a daily basis of any idol, of anything, of any thing that would diminish or divert or detour all of your affections, all of your emotions, all of your best thoughts, all of your best energies from developing that relationship with Christ, with God the Father through God the Spirit. You get rid of those idols. And that's the book. That's the letter. Twenty sermons later, we're, we end First John. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And if there are ways that we can minister to you, either through encouragement or helping you to discover this God who wants you through the cross of His Son Jesus and that sacrifice through compassion and mercy, the grace, the gift, the gift of salvation that He gives to you, He wants to have that relationship with you through those things. If that appeals to you tonight and you're willing to surrender your life to Him, we're going to have some shepherds down here at the front to talk to you about that, that stand and sing together. Wonderful story of love. Wake the immortal strain. Angels with rapture announce it, shepherds with wonder.